Subscribe with iTunes, Audio Boom, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. And if you enjoy what you hear, like us on Facebook. Also, consider throwing a little cash our way by visiting patreon.com slash koreafm. And find more of our great content on our home on the web, koreafm.net. I'm Chance Dorland, and here are some conversations I had with journalists and other experts who presented on the second day of the Asian American Journalists Association's new Now Next media conference called Journalism in the Mobile Age that just finished up here in Seoul, South Korea. Let's begin by hearing some of the panelists who spoke during Saturday's first afternoon session titled Censorship and the People's Right to Know. Hi, I'm Ching Ching Ni. I'm the editor of the Chinese New York Times. Something that you mentioned during the panel that just finished here is that uh, freedom of speech or maybe press freedom is sometimes a foreign concept in countries that, uh, you know, journalists are working in. And specifically, you brought up China. Could you talk about that? Well, everybody knows that there's censorship in China because the media is owned by the government and the uh, the media has to listen to the government, especially in recent years. They have to do that a lot more. And so foreign media operating within China uh, are governed by two sets of rules. One we is our own sense of journalistic mission, which is freedom of the press, and we absolutely refuse to be censored. But at the same time, if we operate within China, you have to abide by certain rules, although we do not censor ourselves, the New York Times does not censor ourselves, but we do face a challenging environment as a result. And then you mentioned um, kind of how much social media-wise you've had to restart the New York Times Chinese language edition. Um, Basically, as soon as you get a certain amount of followers, you have to start from the bottom. Why is that? We use a different name because we lose everyone that, you know, we had like, I don't know, 70, whatever thousand followers or, you know, 100,000 followers and then you lose all of them. So they have to find you again because now you have a different name and that's the only way we could survive again or build up our readership. But surprisingly, we have a very loyal following. They do find us. And so uh, we refuse to give up so we continue to revive ourselves whenever we can and try to reach out to the same audience it's not always easy it's never easy actually brian fowler the managing editor for japan and korea at bloomberg news something you just mentioned um, was this uh, political neutrality term could you talk about what that means in japan when it comes to reporting well it's actually kind of hard to say because there's a vagueness to it. Uh, What does political neutrality mean? I mean, every journalist tries to be as fair as possible just by their own, by their training. And we think it means that, we think that the Abe administration interprets it to mean uh, do not go against the the party line. Do not, you know, Abe's Abe's lines, Abe's stance is, is the right one. So if you are, are somehow attacking it, you are no longer neutral. But you also mentioned that companies can also, aside from what you just mentioned, enact some kind of censorship as well. Why is that? Well, companies spend a lot of time worried about their image and about their brand. So they, they, they really don't like to have any kind of story that, that makes them look bad, even if it's, if it's obviously factual. We've had companies where, you know, we noticed that their stock price was at a 30-year low, so we wrote a story about it, and they came to complain. And we said, well, what are you, why are you telling us? If the market says your company's in trouble. We didn't make that up. That's not our opinion. Your share price is at a 30% low. That's your problem. And, and then they agree and they say, well, yeah, okay, but we didn't want anyone to think about it. So, I mean, they try to shut us down and they, they threaten to take access away from us uh, and, and, you know, try to get rid of those stories that they don't like. My name is Nigel and I work for um, PNU. 
um, teaching media innovation technology. So I'm just trying to take part in the conference here and uh, show a more of a Korean perspective. And the Korean perspective definitely was present in this panel. Something specifically, I asked a question about it, but you also brought it up before that. Um, Self-censorship being an issue here in Korea, in addition to press freedom in general, we've seen plummet um, with the new rankings that they just put out. Could you expand on that a little? Well, when it comes to control of media, Korea is a a lot more subtle than some of the other countries we see um, in the region. But what's happened is that the journalists and writers in Korea have become aware of of the expectations in terms of what can and can't be said. And now they know exactly when they're overstepping the line and when they need to pull back and when they need to avoid certain topics. And it's it's, it's a real general understanding now that that's going to be kept in place and people are going to avoid the the, uh, most controversial items. Where do you see this going? Um, as was mentioned during the panel, Korea's press freedom has fallen recently. Um, still, you know, much better than a lot of other places, of course. And as you mentioned, it's it's a very different situation than perhaps Thailand, which came up uh, on the panel as well from Steve. Uh, where do you see this going? More of the same? Do you think it might change with a new presidency? Well, Korea's press freedom and international profile are going in, in, in the opposite direction in a way. So more people are aware of Korea around the world and Korea's status um, as a country internationally is growing. So I think what's likely to happen is that there's going to be an increased number of journalists and writers writing about, about Korea outside of Korea and providing the insights that are needed into, into the country from a safe location in you know, the likes of Australia, Europe or North America. Hi, I'm Wan Ha. I'm a news editor at Bloomberg News. We had a lot of topics that just came up in the panel discussion um, on media censorship that just finished. Something that I wanted to ask you about specifically, in Vietnam you mentioned you can leave, you have a foreign passport. What's the difference when it comes to someone like yourself who has a foreign passport nationality versus someone who's more of a local contributor? I think the risk for a local uh, reporter is always greater than, than a risk for somebody like me who has a foreign passport. Um, if the government uh, gets upset about something that I write, uh, the worst thing that, that, that can probably happen to me is they'll, they'll deport me, they'll kick me out of the country, or they won't renew my visa when it's time to come to renewals. Uh, for the local reporter, obviously, the risks can be, a, can be very dire. Um, there can be harassment. They'll be called to have coffee, you know, at the very least. Um, their family could also be intimidated. Um, it hasn't happened to that extreme, but I'm saying these are the, these are the risks that, that they obviously face. In our office, for example, a couple of years ago, we've had situations where immigration and police will call our reporters after stories that they did not like, just to kind of let them know that, you know, that's not so great. Uh, that's not a great story. It's not a good reflection of Vietnam, right? And it's, it's really, over time, that can be, that kind of harassment um, really does take hold and, and really actually can be, be quite detrimental um, for a local reporter. So I think, as certainly as a, a manager, you do have to be um, aware of that. And, and there are lots of decisions I make um, where I have to weigh those risks. Saturday, I also spoke with two panelists who gave tips during their session, Money Behind Content. Fighting for the right balance. My name is Singin Lee. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Radish and Byline, and I'm no longer uh, involved in Byline. But this is um, why I came to speak here. So let's talk about that. How does crowdfunding journalism work with something like Byline or another organization? What are the pros and cons of that, and how much success has that seen so far? 
Well, number one is basically um, to your first question. A journalist pitches a story to the crowd instead of an editor. So what happens in the newsroom is all done in public. So normally, as a journalist, you would pitch a story to editor and get approved by the editorial staff, and then you can write that story. You get the funding from the company, right? But you're pitching the story to the general public. They decide it's worth funding or not. And they give money, and funding actually is kind of working like votes. If you get enough funders for your project, it happens, and you can do your own journalism. So that's that's number one. Number two is for your second question or. On the pros and cons, the pros is basically it's a very democratized journalism. You're getting the people to decide, not a small elite, elite group of editors. So it's really more democratized and also transparent, right? Uh, but the cons is whether whether you can scale beyond investigative journalism. How how is it generally applicable for entire journalism industry? I don't think. Yeah, it's not. It's ready to be seen. Yeah, it goes without saying. Social media is important in just about anything, any industry now. But you, you said something to the effect of social media basically is controlling news distribution at this point. Why is that the case? Have you ever gone to the front page of uh, Wall Street Journal to read news? I, I don't think many people do that anymore. People actually find their news on Twitter, Facebook, maybe even Snapchat for millennials. They all discover their news for their、uh, from their social media distribution, because in social media they recommend you content, they personalize content. You can get access news from millions of different sources. So it's much more efficient to go onto that that front page than go to Wall Street Journal front page or Financial Times front page. Except a very niche group of people who are very in- loyal to these newspapers. It's very hard. So more and more you will see these social media companies in Silicon Valley controlling the distribution of news. Something else you talked about、um, during the panel that just finished—the role of entertainment in not only journalism but funding journalism. Something like BuzzFeed got started. I believe you said cat pictures. Cat pictures. And now they do things that maybe are similar to cat pictures, but they also do some reporting as well. So, what's that relationship? And is that okay as long as there are some controls? I mean, basically, to be very realistic, it's very hard to directly fund journalism and crowdfunding. It's working for investigative journalism, but because journalism is so substitutable to other things, it's, it's,、uh, there's so many sources that you can get news from. No one wants to pay for journalism directly. So in that case, you have to find an alternative source of journalism. You have to cross subsidize it. So one way is to really, really get the money for your entertainment media content. So Disney has NBC. And the reason why they can do journalism is because they have a huge money coming from entertainment、uh, content. News Corporation has Wall Street Journal, which is losing money, but they have 20th Century Fox. They have all these entertainment content, which is making a lot of profit. That's why they can do Wall Street Journal. Bloomberg has is not entertainment, but they have a financial business, terminal business. That's cross-subsidizing journalism content. So, a lot of successful journalism media companies,、um, they don't actually. People don't actually pay for their journalism. People pay for other verticals within the company, and that pays for the journalism content, which gives them influence as a media company. So that's how it's been working for many companies until now. Hi, I'm Stella Kim, and I am basically a freelance journalist and lecturer. Is how I would like to define myself. But right now, I'm working for NBC News as their producer. 
you had a lot of uh, great information and comments on the role of um, basically paying for information or paying for interviews, um, and that's not something that you support. Could you talk about why that's your stance, and then also how do you go about being active in journalism with a limit that some people don't have? Obviously, that's probably harder than someone who could pay for things. Well, first of all, I believe that if if I'm a proper journalist, that I do not pay for my information because that will um, infringe on the integrity of the quality of the information, which which means, in simple words, it will not be an accurate information. And I think the utmost important value in journalism, however uh, we define it, and and whichever um, age we, we live in, is accuracy. Unless we deliver quality content, there's no reason for our um, audiences to read or listen to us. Because there's so many bloggers, there's a citizen journalism today, which can be faster than actual journalists can deliver. And how do you then compete in this world? And I think the only way that real journalists can compete against bloggers, citizen journalists, backpack journalists, is through the quality control of what they deliver, that if you can count on the stories I deliver, then I think there'll be somebody who'll be listening to me and pay me to work for them. But then if I cannot reach certain degree of integrity and quality content, then I see no reason why anybody will have to pay a journalist to work for, because you can get even um, more shocking information or faster information through so many SNS. But the truth is, it's very hard to reach a high-quality journalism in a speedy way. Uh, But I think you can only work for it. And just because it's difficult, you can't say you won't do it. And and I think the challenge makes it even more interesting that... And also, challenge sets apart the real journalists from non-journalists. As was discussed during the panel that just finished, um, there's a lot of money, different sources, different ways is transferred in journalism here in South Korea, and of course, other places as well. Um, how realistic uh, these ethical guidelines that you've developed for yourself, um, and you just explained now to those in attendance, how realistic is this someone working for um, you know, the multitude of industries, the different types of reporting people uh, are engaged in? Do you think this is something that anyone could do? Yes, I think it's totally doable because I've been doing it for the last 29 years and I continue, I'm continuously doing it and I intend to do it in the future as well because unless I stick to this principle that I'm not paying for my information, I'm no different from anybody walking on the street and I can't claim myself to be a respectable journalist doing the right thing. And it is hard, but and it also it is up to each one and, and one and every journalist to do the best to persuade your interviewee that you do not pay for your information. And if you go through one person and after and after until you find one, then you can do it. It's just, if you want to um, take a shortcut and not invest into finding the proper interviewee, then you could take that as an excuse that, well, everybody wants it. Uh, but for me, I think that it's not a good enough reason not to continue search for the, the right one who's willing to work with the principle that you do not take money for information they share. And that's very different from a compensation defector after the story is done, which is what I've been explained. Because in cases like defectors whose livelihood very much depend on daily work, uh, if I take them away for, say, five days of my documentary, I am doing my job. But I, I am preventing from 
recruit them from making their uh, earning their living. And I think that needs to be compensated. But if you put that up front, then you are compromising yourself with the story. So for me personally, until the entire story is done, my role is that I do not pay for the content. But I think at the same time, you have to put into the factor of being fair that you do not exploitate the information, i.e. you do not exploitate the source of that information, which is the same as exploitating information to do my job, which I think is not only unfair but unethical. So for me, these are certain ethical guidelines that I live with. Unfortunately, up to this point, I was able to stick to them. But you're right that it doesn't come cheap. It doesn't come easy. You have to invest in finding your interviewee until you meet the person with your standard. And finally, you mentioned your lecturer, so, you know, a journalist, but also someone that, uh, you know, is advising, you know, the next journalist. What's your advice um, for making money for students or young journalists who are just getting in a start? Well, actually, um, all my students want the same advice as to whether they should go into journalism or not. And um, my, even my daughter started off as a journalism um, Major and now she's learning uh, to become a occupational therapist um, in the U.S. Um, and that's because of the lifestyle that the journalism imposes. That she learned that I have no uh, day-to-day fixed schedule. That I could be working anytime, meaning over the weekend, at night, in the morning. And she wanted something more stable. Expanding onto this. Journalist is somebody who needs to serve public while they're being paid by a company, i.e. private sector. So I think journalists are kind of not a, a real, like, salaryman type of lifestyle. If you expect a very steady uh, office lifestyle, then you don't want to be a journalist. But once you want to commit it to, to journalism, I think the, the baggage of lifestyle of journalism has to come with it. And you have to accept it. And that means that the pay may not be as much as in the office worker. But if you can find the satisfaction in knowing that you're doing the right thing and serving the public good, and if you're happy going to bed with that thought, I think it's great to be a journalist, to meet people of all walks of life. And you can be the front seat of any historical event, which is a privilege a lot of people doesn't get to do because... It's a meager maybe, but we still get paid for it. And finally, the last day of AAJA's N3Con here in Seoul featured a workshop on virtual reality video from Google. I'm Taewon Park. I'm leading a team in Korea on YouTube online partnerships. So our job is to educate, grow the YouTube creators and partners in general. I think the VR video is, from YouTube perspective, to enhance the experience not only just one dimension but three uh, 360 dimension that viewers can much appreciate and consume the contents in a visual and audio way. And so everyone here I believe got a free set or a free Google Cardboard. Everybody's been playing around with it. Could you describe what that is for someone who hasn't seen that before um, and how do people use it? I think Cardboard is Google Cardboard is to give much choices to the uh, viewers or audience so a lot of device can be really costly and then we, the reason why we are developing this cardboard is to make uh, make users more affordable to to experience the, this VR with cardboard 
And you went through 10 fundamental guidelines for virtual reality videos, but I think they're also probably good just for YouTube videos in general. Could you just kind of go through some of the finer points there? Yeah, um, the points that I explained during the presentation was shareability. So will viewers will share the videos? If so, what's the 10 words to describe the videos? So interactivity. So is there an element within your videos to interact with your viewers or audience? Uh, consistency, so across your videos, across your channels, is there recurring elements within, uh, within those videos? Um, discoverability, so will viewers find your videos through search or related videos? Lastly was accessibility, so will viewers can consume your content without uh, knowing the context? And during your presentation, you gave quite a few examples. Um, some of them were rather uh, obvious. For instance, you showed uh, a video uh, covering some earthquakes that happened in Japan. Um, very good perspectives to, to be able to get the full 360 of what's going on. But you also showed um, some things that people might not think about um, where VR could be good. Uh, for instance, you showed some fashion videos and also some sports videos. Where are you seeing, from your perspective, VR being really used effectively? Well, I think... So VR videos is, to, is designed to give the viewers an option to which one they want to watch, either VOD format, just like the uh, one-dimension videos, or 360 format. So I think it's up to later on viewers who will decide which video they want to watch. And then the reason why I think the, our partners are developing so much VR video is that so they want to make this experience not only just sit down and lean back, but more like lean for and be participative into the video. That's why. So I think it's not about the topic. It's more about uh, kind of experience they want to give. A question was asked, what type of VR videos are becoming popular in Korea? And you mentioned, you know, it's a new thing, so there's not so much data out there, but you mentioned specifically K-pop videos. Um, and you also mentioned some partnerships that uh, you have with not only uh, camera equipment manufacturers, but uh, media entities. What are some of those partnerships that uh, Google is using right now to create more content or enable people to create content? Well, I think the, the final purpose of here is to give viewers the option to, to watch. And then since we, we don't see many uh, VR videos yet, but that's why we are trying to educate and provide a technology to enable our partners to come up with the new content. I think that's pretty much all. And uh, also you mentioned that um, people that might not have equipment or might not have access, there are ways, uh, for instance, like a YouTube blogger, um, there are ways to go somewhere and use some equipment to create their own VR videos. Could you talk about that opportunity? So uh, for the YouTube partners, we have a YouTube space across the world. Uh, in Asia Pacific, uh, we have one in Japan, one in uh, India, where we have uh, 360 videos, cameras, uh, with that, our creators can use it for free and then shoot uh, 360 videos they are dreaming for. And then finally, uh, obviously, new format, new technology, better cameras are coming out all the time. Uh, where do you see this going, either in the near future or further in the future? Will, will it be commonplace to see you know, your favorite videos on YouTube be VR, or will it be a little bit more restricted than that? Well, I, 
I think we gotta still wait and see how it goes. But I think I uh, hopefully, since many of our partners are tuning into their uh, program into the VR focused, and then that's the starting point that more viewers will later on find it very very interesting. And then that's a starting point of uh, all these evolutions. Uh, which I think early to tell. Which the direction that we are heading for, but still we are simply providing technology to enable this um, situation. I'm Chance Dorland, and thanks for checking out my coverage of the Asian American Journalists Association's sixth New Now Next Media Conference called Journalism in the Mobile Age that took place right in my own backyard here in Seoul, South Korea. You can find this and all my other New Now Next Media Conference interviews at bitly.com/n3con. Korea FM.